Welcome, and thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Matthews Podcast, a podcast highlighting commercial real estate news, topics, and trends from top professionals in the industry. I'm your host, Matt Wallace, commercial real estate veteran for over 10 years here, executing on over a billion dollars of transactions across the country and across all asset classes. I now serve as a market leader for Matthews, helping to expand the brand into new markets. Today, we are joined by Jeff Arobio, an experienced mortgage broker at Matthews. He has provided hands-on service to his clients for over 26 years, advising and securing financing for over $1.8 billion worth of commercial real estate transactions nationwide. He has developed extensive relationships with life insurance companies, banks, private debt funds, CMBS, private equity groups, and credit unions. In this episode, we dive into the nuances of capital markets, touching on construction, permanent financing, and the overall state of the economy for buyers. Please welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Let's dive on in. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. The big driver in commercial real estate today is debt. So why don't we start with a, a primer on, you know, what does it look like today versus what did it look like 12 months ago? And, and what is the what's the state of the economy right now? So in, in terms of debt, obviously the Fed fund the Fed has raised overnight interest rates by what 525 basis points over the past couple quarters due to, to inflation issues. And that has put a, a drag, obviously, on the a pricing of capital across the board from life insurance companies, CMBS, banks, et cetera. In comparison from 12 months ago to today, whereas 12 months ago, maybe you're going out for a construction loan and you can get you know, a rate in the maybe 6% range, today you're in the eights. Uh, maybe nines. Permanent debt is priced, you know, between six and a half and seven and a half today, whereas 12 months ago, you were still in the fives. So there's been a major shift in the pricing of capital, in addition to some liquidity squeezes with a lot of the, the regional banks in particular, whereas, you know, life insurance companies and CMBS do have plenty of capital to lend, but they're a little more stringent on their underwriting criteria. So, you know, we've seen some a loss of liquidity for sure and pricing adjustments and i think borrowers and buyers are having to make those adjustments on their on their acquisitions let's dive into each of those separately so you're talking about two major items that are impacting both volumes and pricing but let, let's talk about pricing specifically how has the rapid increase directly impacted investment sale pricing as well as construction pricing and how is that impacting transaction volumes well, deals are really hard to pencil when buyers are trying to sell at cap rates at five, but your cost of capital is six or seven. It, it you know it's a negative effect on your return, so it's hard for an investor to make sense of some of these these deals out there when the when capital is so expensive uh, or in relative terms. Historically, it's not as expensive as it was in the '80s, but when you're coming off of a ten, you know ten years of almost free money and rates in the threes and fours and fives, and now you're in the sixes and sevens, it's it's a little bit of a sticker shock. So I think I think clients are having, these investment clients are having some issues trying to pencil deals to see if they have positive cash flow on a leveraged basis. And that's why you've seen price adjustments across the board in all asset classes. And we can get into specific assets between multifamily and retail, and particularly office, which is obviously a, a tough, tough segment right now because of COVID and, and people working from home, but it's it people are have, are struggling to make deals work. What is it going to take to readjust that pricing expectation for the people that have been 
feeding off of free money from the Fed for the last decade? Well, it's going to it's going to there's two ways, <laughs> two ways this occurs. You know, price expectations have to adjust. Either cap rates go higher, which lowers valuations of assets so they can they can make it, you know, reasonable adjusted returns on their investments or we have a catalyst in the marketplace, i.e. something breaks in the market, you know, there's a black swan event, et cetera, where the Fed has to pivot and start cutting rates. That catalyst could be, you know, treasury issues. I mean, the treasury has to refinance a lot of their debt in the next couple quarters. And there's billions of dollars worth of, of corporate debt that needs to be repriced, which could lead to some bankruptcies with some of the, you know, junk bond type of corporations. And that will have an effect you know, with the Fed and and possibly make them pivot in a way where they'll start cutting rates. So, I you know, my, I see clients, you know, their expectations are that they're, they're thinking that a Fed, the Fed will start cutting rates in 2024 when that's, you know, to be estimated currently. But, um, you know, most of my clients want short-term type debt because they think the Fed's going to pivot and they can get longer term fixed rate capital, you know, six, 12, you know, 18 months from now. You mentioned that, you know, historically we're not in a wildly expensive interest rate environment. So why is the consensus that we're going to be lowering rates in 2024? Well, I think it's a function of buyers or investors in the last 10 years, they bought it, you know, three and four, five cap rates. So when you look at, and they're trying to exit today in a six or a seven cap rate, that's an adjustment to their equity, right? And when you have buyers coming into the market wanting to buy these assets at the six and the seven, there's a disconnect, right, between buyers and sellers. And you load on top of that, where your cost of capital, the finance these assets are in the sixes and sevens, well, that affects your purchase price. So there's a definite shift going on with regards to asset pricing across the board. Uh, and that just has to play out. And it doesn't happen in a quarter. It happens over a year or, you know, 18 months where buyers and sellers start to see eye to eye. And that just takes some time. Going into the maybe more of the fundamentals of banking, you mentioned the liquidity squeeze that some of the regional banks are feeling. Can, can you walk us into the details on that that's also limiting the availability of capital to finance deals? Absolutely. Yeah, that's really a function of balance sheet issues with regional banks. You kind of saw it, you know, with SVB and with Signature Bank, where some of these banks were upside down based on their treasury holdings, maybe not real estate holdings. But now it, it could be some some of these banks have issues with their real estate holdings where their cash positions or deposit base, you know, they're offering interest rates at, you know, 0.1%. Or, or half a basis point or maybe 1% return on deposits, and they're trying to lend their money at six and a half or seven. Well, when banks see depletion of their capital base, i.e., you know, their deposits start going from 0% interest rate return into treasuries or into money market accounts, there's a lack of liquidity that those banks have. And so that puts a major drag on their lending platforms where they just don't have the capital to lend. So that's been a that's been a problem with a lot of the regional banks and and that will keep playing out over the next year or two for sure. So we've got a, a one-two punch there and it, so is that then driving 
volume to the larger players and they're the only shop in town that's open for business? Correct. I mean, you're seeing, especially on the construction side, you know, the well-capitalized banks, um, construction has been very difficult to, to do today, unfortunately, just because of underwriting constraints. You know, whereas a year ago, you're maybe at 75% loan to cost, and now you're maybe at 60, 65% loan to cost. And these banks are asking for additional kickers that they want deposits, they want a depository relationship with you, and they want to have liquidity and net worth constraints on top of that. So construction is very difficult today. And the, the problem is, is that, you know, with the multifamily side and the retail side or self-storage side, you're having a lot of these clients who would like to have deals that are permit shovel ready have to readjust their equity uh, positions, either increase their equity tremendously or just put pencils down just because they're going to sit out and wait and see what happens in the next, you know, eight to 12 months. But yes, that construction shift has gone to, to non-bank players. And when you, when you go to that well, if you will, they're much more expensive. And because, and they know that they're only game in town. So the clients really have to make a decision, you know, is it worth doing now or do we just mothball it, wait and build it at another time? Of course, you may have to land bank your, your asset for a while. So I'm having those discussions with many of my clients and they're making those decisions on the board level or on the private office level, thinking that, hey, maybe we should just wait for another 12 months to see what happens. So certainly seems like the volumes being driven to the larger players or to the extremely high cost players that yeah. have to be compensated for their risk. So the, yeah. the leverage in holding up deals has really swung again to the big players. So what what types of deals are you seeing being executed for for construction financing or even permanent financing? What what is the appetite by asset class that big banks are getting done? Well, let, let's make sure we understand what the term big, big banks mean, because, you know, unless you have a depository relationship with a big bank, and I'm, you know, I'm talking BFAs, Wells Fargo's, Chase, you know, JP Morgan Chase, Citigroup's, those, those lenders are really only lending to their current deposit base. Coming from the outside and trying to do a deal with those big, larger money center banks, they're just saying, no, thank you. You know, those clients are going to regionals and those regionals, as I said, most of them have, have really put the brakes on, on their, on their construction lending side. And so the clients are really scrambling as to, you know, how do I get this deal done? So it's really not a function of going to larger players per se. I think it's more of a function of using an alternative type of lending source that may be higher priced, but it gets the job done. Um, and clients have to rethink, you know, their, their capital stack maybe putting more equity in the deal, which tends to, to be the issue today with a lot of clients. And, and sometimes if they have to do that, they basically will, will mothball it for, for a couple months uh, to see where the market goes. Permanent financing is very different. You know, if you have a stabilized cash flowing asset and you're, you're simply looking to refinance your existing loan into a new loan, well, there's some sticker shock there because if you've done a deal over the last five to 10 years and you're going from that loan into this new loan, well, you know, those, the pricing of those loans at the time were in the fours or fives. And now again, you're going from a four and a 5% interest rate into something that's, you know, fixed maybe for 10 years at six and a half to seven. So there was some sticker shock there. In addition, 
you know, the loan to values, even for permanent loans today, are not 75%. And maybe with the agencies, you can get up to that level pending where your debt service coverages are, because it's really a, a math equation today. It's really not a valuation equation at the end of the day, because rates have, have crept up to where we are today. So it's all based on cash flow. Leverages are around 60 to 65% today, kind of across the board for, for permanent financing. Again, agencies are a different, a little bit different animal, but you have life, life insurance companies, you know, credit unions, agency lending sources, and you do have some some banks, not very many of them today, you know, lending in that space that that will be at the 60, 65% range. You mentioned something, and this might be, you know, really deep in the details for the the underwriting side of this, but I, I just want to point it out. So you mentioned that the the metric that is most important today is your debt service coverage ratio. How was it looked at in the past? How has it changed to that? And and what does that actually mean? Can you, can you dive into the the real details and the nuance of underwriting, how, how a lending institution looks at it? Yeah. So, you know, debt service coverage ratio basically is taking your, your, your NOI and debt operating income, which is you know, your, your gross income, less all your expenses, and maybe mark to market your property taxes because an appraiser is going to do that on a, any new loan. They'll look at what the, the valuation of your asset is today and mark your property taxes to market. And then you subtract, you know, your, your gross income from your expense line, line items and come to an NOI number. And so a, a lender, depending on the asset class, so if a lender is called multifamily for, for a moment, they're going to underwrite to you know 120 maybe at the low end, but typically 125 debt service coverage off of your NOI, and which means that your your income, your NOI income has to support enough cash flow for that loan to be 125 percent of of the of the loan amount. So on the debt service side, so if you're using a 25 year amortization or a 30 year amortization schedule. And your rates are six and a half, and you calculate a loan constant from your amortization and your interest rate. Your NOI divided by your debt service coverage divided by your loan constant basically equals your loan amount. I know I'm getting in the weeds here in the technicals, but that's how you know, loans are, are calculated today. I, lo I love getting into the technicals. I love it. Okay. But how? Why is the the focus on debt service coverage increased in this type of environment versus? I mean, you know five, seven, eight, ten years ago, it was all about LTV. Well, it's it's because of the math, because rates have increased. <laughs> so when you when you were underwriting 10 years ago and your loan constant was at six and a half or five and a half, but now it's at eight and a half, that's a big delta in the equation, right? So it it becomes a math equation and your debt service coverage comes into play more than LTV. So it's it's really just a mathematical equation, just because of where rates are today. You you mentioned banks are uh, getting a little more stringent on their underwriting. What else does that mean? While while we're in the weeds on on the details, what what else uh, are they you know pulling back on or you know taking their foot off the gas pedal on? If you kind of look at it from an asset class, uh, for sure, office they've really pulled back, unless it's medical office with credit tenancy or a credit tenant per se. Most banks have really pulled off the, the gas on, on office assets. You know, industrial, multi-tenant industrial or credit industrial, when I mean by credit, I mean triple B minus or better 
uh, rated S&P rating or, or Fitch or Moody's. Anchored retail, grocery anchored retail, those types of deals, multifamily, those types of deals are sought after. They'll take a look at those, but they'll be conservative because they, they have to be on, on their underwriting metrics. I think going forward, you know, the, I, the, the two best sources currently in this marketplace, when you look at just permanent financing, is really life insurance companies who have an entirely different cost of capital than banks. And then you do have some credit unions. I'm not a huge proponent of credit unions, but they, they do serve a necessary liquidity spigot within the marketplace today. But life insurance companies have picked up a lot of the slack that the banks have you know, avoided, honestly. So, and their cost of capital is very different than a bank because they're not really relying on deposits to, to make their loans. They're, they're really relying on those income streams from life insurance policies. They need to balance out what their liabilities are and their assets. So it's a, it's a different mechanism in the marketplace. And I think life insurance companies will, will be a sought after lending source going forward in the next couple of years for sure. Are the credit unions stepping into that void from the regional banks? They are from a permanent loan standpoint, but not from a construction standpoint. Most credit unions are not in the construction business. Got it. What what about some of the kind of emerging asset classes or more specialized, I'd say, you know, the the self-storage, the data centers, the manufactured housing? What's the appetite across the board for these asset classes that have really just, you know, started to heat up over the last five years? Well, I think you have to throw BFR in there for sure, build for end assets. That's been that's been a big asset class. For quite a few years, the, the issue there is construction financing. You can do permanent financing on BFR all day long once they're leased, but build for rent, I think, has been a pretty sought-after asset class. You know, self-storage is another one. You know, there's, I think if you look at household formations, especially in today's marketplace where, you know, people are not moving because, you know, single-family refinancing is very high. And, you know, 90% or maybe that's a wrong stat, but maybe 80% of the, the nation has secured, you know, mortgages, 30-year mortgages or 15-year mortgages in the twos and threes. So that asset, but those people are not moving. And so what that means is that there's going to be a need for more self-storage going forward for sure. And so self-storage, you know, th those, that asset classes sought after, especially if it has a flag to it, you know, extra space or public storage or, you know, StoreQuest, CubeSmart, the, those assets in particular markets are going to do extremely well going forward. Again, the issue that I see in that asset class is just securing the construction financing. But once it's built, there are plenty of, of takeout sources for those types of assets once they're cash flowing. So th those two, I think, are, are very interesting going forward. And I think a lot more players are getting into both of those spaces for sure. What do you think about the manufactured housing sector and how how has that developed over the last couple of years and how are institutions looking at playing in that space? I think manufacture. I love manufactured housing as an asset class. There just hasn't been many you know, manufactured housing or mobile home park deals built over the last 10, 15 years. Maybe um, it's yeah, it, 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 that's totally true. And if you look at it, most manufactured housing assets are, are built in, in flood zones, unfortunately, because it's it's the least desirable piece of land within a municipality. And so they will they'll zone it for manufactured housing. So, you know, that and that's kind of across the country, unfortunately. But it, it serves an affordable housing need for sure. 
you know, you have the agencies, Freddie and Fannie, who will finance those deals all day long, assuming they cash flow nicely and have the historical cash flow, you know, statements and, and underwrite to, you know, 125 debt service covers at today's rates. You'll, you'll have nice execution on those types of assets. So with such a, a turbulent market here, what what advice do you have for, you know, sellers that are, you know, coming up on a maturity or or buyers looking to to get into one of the asset classes that you focus on? Like how do they what's their best approach? What are the general strategies we need they need to know about? Well, I think patience is a little warranted here to see how things play out for for one for sure. But with regards to someone who has a loan coming due, property owners are not in the market every day. We, we're in the market every day. We see where rates are today. We see lenders come in, lenders go out. You know, it happens all the time. And there's certain lenders who stay in the market all the time because they're mandated to, like Freddie and Fannie and some life insurance companies because they, they need to put money out. But it's really important for you know, borrowers to talk to their advisors because if, if they're just going to their bank, that that's one method of finance. And if that bank wants to sell you their capital at X, whereas if you're talking to an advisor who has the market knowledge to say, hey, you know, there you've got four or five other options here that may be a lot cheaper. Maybe it's non-recourse comparative to a recourse deal with your, your local lender. You know, you, you need to use your advisor to your advantage and, and help help leverage your time and and the, the advisor's expertise to secure a better you know, transaction that will, will help you over the long term. So I think that's really important, especially for those those borrowers who have loans coming due. Now, with regards to buyers of assets, you know, as I said, I think patience is a little warranted as the you know pricing has adjusted. For, for a lot of assets across the board, but you know, stay opportunistic. There's going to be opportunities definitely in the next 12 to, to 12 to 24 months where if you really want to get into a certain market or certain asset class and you're talking to your to your talking to Matthews, for instance, in be it QSR or apartments or retail, just stay in front of them and 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 ask questions, be inquisitive and and use their their broad-based market knowledge to help you navigate some of those markets. Yeah, the the basis is permanent, right? The financing is temporary. So <laughs> true. Yeah. And and but hopefully temporary and it's going in the right direction for, yeah. for buyers and sellers here. But you know, so I, I guess the point is that you know you need to have all the information uh, to make the best business decision. And the way to do that is to to work with a specialist. And that's certainly something that I know yourself and, and Matthews prides itself on is absolute expertise within the the product line. So yeah. Jeff, uh, anything else to add today before we wrap up? I, I think we're okay. I just think it's going to be interesting, quote unquote, the next couple quarters. But I think we'll 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 see what unfolds and what opportunities uh, are provided here. And there could be some some great opportunities then coming out. Absolutely, volatility creates opportunity. There's Absolutely. no doubt about that. True. So, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights with our listeners. It's incredibly valuable. And thank you to everyone for listening and. Please be sure to, to tune in next time. Thank you. 